0: chapter 4 of wolf the saxon by george alfred henty this librivox recording is in the public domain a storm after hunting for two days in the forests lying behind new haven and in the valley in which lewis lies they again embarked the master of harold's ship had expressed some doubts as to the weather but as he stated it was but some 8 miles around the great cliff they saw to the east and that beyond this the rock ceased and there was a bay in which they could ride at anchor, or if necessary beach their vessels, it was determined to proceed. As Harold had, the day before, been visited by a Thane, whose house lay but two miles from the shore, and had accepted his invitation for the party to take up their abode there for a few days, as he promised them good sport in the forest. The cliffs rose higher as they proceeded. They kept close in shore and although they could see that the clouds were flying rapidly overhead, they felt no breeze whatever, being protected from the wind by the lofty cliffs. The master was evidently uneasy, for he urged the rowers to exert themselves to the utmost. Wulf and Beorn stood looking with amazement at the cliffs towering up beside them. "'Is it not strange that they should rise like this, like a wall from the water?' Wulf had they been built up by human hands they could scarcely have been more erect and regular i have never seen anything like it at all on land then it must be something formed by the sea wolf do you see those caverns in the foot of the cliff and in some places you see there is a mound of rocks as if newly formed it may be that this white stone is soft and that the sea is beating against the foot wears it away in time and then the rock overhead gives way by its weight and so leaves an upright wall. Perhaps long back these hills were like other hills, sloping gradually down into the sea. But in time, perhaps many, many years before the Romans landed here, the sea began to eat them away, and has continued to do so ever since, until they are as we see them. That may be so, Biorn. My father has told me that he could remember when our estate stretched a good half-mile further seaward, but had since been eaten away by the waves and he says that his father had told him the same thing therefore as you say in many hundreds of years even hills if the stone were soft might also be worn away there we are rounding the point and beyond there are no more cliffs doubtless it is in this bay that shipmaster edred thinks to anchor at that moment their conversation was cut short by a tremendous gust of wind rushing down the sloping hill into the bay striking them with such terrible force that the ship Heeled over until the water rushed above the bullock the men were thrown against each other and several fell down to leeward the confusion was heightened by the fact that the great sail which was but loosely furled to its yard burst the ropes and the wind catching it buried the craft still further and she would have filled and sunk had not the shipmaster seized the tiller and aided by the two sailors there pushed it up so that the boat's head paid off from the wind, and ran before it. The master shouted to the men to lower the sail, which was bellying and flapping violently. But before his orders could be obeyed there was a crash. The mast snapped off at the slings of the yard, and the wreck fell over the bow of the boat. All hands were employed for some minutes in getting the sail on board, and furling it to its yard, which was laid lengthways along the thwarts. It was found that three men standing in the bows had been killed and several others badly hurt. The vessel was by this time some distance from shore. Nothing could be done until she was freed of the water, with which she was nigh half full, and all hands were employed in bailing it out. The squall had increased rather than lessened in fury, and by the time the water was cleared they were two miles from the headland. Orders were then given to man the oars again, but it was found that several of these had been lost having been washed away when men leapt up, believing that the boat would capsize, or had slipped from the rollocks unnoticed, while they were engaged in getting in the sail. This was a serious misfortune, for every oar was needed to force her through the water in the teeth of the wind, which was blowing directly off shore. The remaining oars were all double-banked, Harold himself and his thanes taking their places among the rowers. For an hour they laboured their hardest, but at the end of that time they were farther from shore than when they began. The force of the wind acting on the poop and broad hull, driving her seaward faster than the rowers could force her shoreward. The sea, too, was now getting up, and the motion of the vessel rendered it increasingly difficult to row. Edred left his place at the tiller, and went forward to Harold. "'My lord,' he said, "'it is useless. In spite of your efforts, we are drifting farther and farther out. And from the look of the sky, I fear that we are going to have a great gale, and there is nothing to do but set a little sail and to run before it. Maybe there will be presently a shift of wind, which may enable us to make for shore. At present you are but exhausting yourselves in vain, and the sea will soon get up so much that it will be impossible to use the oars.' So be it, Harold replied, and at the master's orders the oars were laid in, and the men prepared to set sail upon her. A sailor climbed up the mast and fastened the stays close to the point which was broken off. Then another joined him, and a block was lashed to the mast just below the stays, and the halyards were roved through it. Then Edred brought out a small sail, and this was hoisted, and the vessel, which before had been rolling heavily, began to glide swiftly through the water. They had the satisfaction of seeing that their consorts, although like themselves nearly capsized by the squall, had suffered no damage, but after lowering their sails and yards to the deck, had succeeded in rowing into the bay, their lighter hull and draught enabling the oars to drive them through the water in the teeth of the wind. "'She is going along finely now,' Wulf said. "'Yes,' Beorn agreed. But before night there is like to be a sea that will try her. Harold held a consultation with the master, and presently all the men were called to work. The great sail was unrolled from its yard, and a portion cut off, somewhat wider than the beam of the boat, and in length reaching from bow to the mast. Nails and hammers were brought up from the little cabin, and the canvas was stretched from bullock to bullock, and strongly nailed to the wood on either side, oars being first lashed across at short intervals to support it. I suppose that is for us to lie under, Master Wolf, Osgod said. It's a pity it was not erected before, for there is not a man on board who is not drenched to the skin. It's not put there to keep you dry, Osgod, but to keep the waves from coming into the ship. But she goes over them well. The wind is getting up, Osgod, and we shall have a great sea presently. Then why don't we turn and sail back again? It seems to me folly to be running away from the land, if such is going to be the weather. How can we sail back again? Do you not see that it is the wind that is blowing us off? And the vessel must go as the wind takes her. One can go little this way or that, but no man ever sailed in the teeth of the wind. This is the first time I have ever been to sea," Osgod said, and I trust it will be the last. The tossing of the ship makes me strangely giddy, and many of the servants are downright ill with it. Why men should go on the water when they can walk upon the land is more than I can say. I think I will go and lie down under the shelter of the sail, for indeed I feel as if I were about to die." Wolf himself was feeling strangely uncomfortable. As long as they had been at work he had not felt unwell, for the necessity of holding on to the bullocks or ropes, and the excitement of their strange position, had saved him from experiencing many qualms, but both he and Beorn were soon glad to follow Osgod's example, and to lie down on the boards under the rowers' benches fiercer and fiercer blew the wind more and more violent became the motion of the ship masses of water fell on the canvas forward as she plunged into the waves and would have soon beaten it in had it not been for the support of the oars by evening most of the men were lying under the shelter while harold's brother and friends had retired to the little cabin in the stern the earl himself remained by the side of the shipmaster who had taken his place close to the tiller which was worked by four men. "'Think you that she will weather it, Edred?' "'I have little to fear about that, my lord. She is a staunch boat, and I have been aboard her in seas as heavy as this. Besides, that thought of yours stretching the canvas across her bow has greatly improved her chances. The water runs off as fast as it falls on it, and none comes on board. Had it not been for this, every man would have had to bail all night. No, I have no fear of her weathering the gale. What I am afraid of is, that if this wind continues to blow, we shall assuredly be lost on the coast of Normandy. That would be an ill-fortune indeed, for I know that the Normans count all that are cast on their shores as lawful prey, and even if we reach the land in safety and escape murder at the hands of the Lord of the Soil and his people, I may fall into the hands of Duke William, who is assuredly no friend of mine seeing that I stand in the way of his designs upon the throne of England. Truly it was an evil moment when the thought of taking to the sea occurred to me, and I would give a broad slice of my earldom to be back at Bosham. Hour by hour the waves increased in size and violence, and often poured in over the sides. The number of men on board was too great for all to work effectively. They therefore were divided into two parties, one being engaged in bailing, while the other lay under cover, the change being made every hour. Wolfe preferred working to lying still, for as the craft rolled, the water washed over them, while the din of the waves striking the ship's side, and the cataracts of spray falling onto the canvas above, were deafening, and it was impossible to get a moment's sleep. All were glad when morning broke, although the scene that met their eyes was the reverse of comforting. Small as was the amount of sail, the vessel tore through the water under the pressure of the following wind. Great waves with white crests pursued her, and as they neared her stern, it seemed to Wolf that they must inevitably fall over and crush her. The spray torn from the crest by the wind filled the air, the wind shrieked in the cordage, and the vessel creaked and groaned as she rolled from side to side. I would not have believed it, if I had not seen it, that the sea could be so violent and ill-behaved," Wulf shouted to Osgod, who was then standing beside him. "'If my clothes were but dry and my stomach full, I would not mind so much,' Osgod replied. But to be drenched in water all night, and have naught to eat in the morning, takes the courage out of one mightily. How long, think you, will this go on? That no one can say. It may last two or three days. And no food all that time, Osgod exclaimed in dismay. We could stand that well enough, Osgod, but I do not think there is much chance of our being called upon to do so, for I heard one of the sailors say that unless the storm abates marvellously we are likely to be cast upon the French coast before nightfall. I should be glad to be cast anywhere so it were out of this, at least whether it be France or England there must be food to be had on shore. You do not understand, Osgod, unless we happen to be cast upon a shelving coast with sand or gravel, the craft may be dashed to pieces, and all lose their lives, for assuredly none could swim long in such a sea as this. Well, we must hope that we shall find a shore such as you speak of," Osgod said tranquilly. But for my part I am content to take the risk rather than wait another three days before getting anything to eat. And I would rather fast for a week than run the risk of the ship being broken up on the rocks," Wulf replied. "'I can swim but a little, even in calm water, and I am sure that I could do nothing among those waves. I can swim, and will look after you,' Osgod said confidently. I used to swim every day in the Thames." Wulf shook his head. "'I dare say you might look after me if I fell into the Thames, Osgod, but it is a very different thing in a sea like this. These waves would dash a swimmer hither and thither, as if he were but a chip of wood. Besides, the spray would smother him. Even at this height above the water, it is difficult to breathe when one turns round and faces the wind. I think that our only hope lies in running upon a flat shore, where the waves will wash the vessel up so high that we might be able to leap out from the bow onto the land beyond the reach of their fury." Late in the afternoon, one of the sailors on the poop astern shouted out that the land was visible, and it was not long before it could be seen from the deck. All eyes were directed anxiously towards it. "'It's a rocky coast,' Edred said. "'But the rocks are not high, and if we can manage to direct the vessel between two of them we may escape. At present it is needful that most of the crew should keep in the stern. But when we are about to strike they must all run suddenly forward, so as to leap out as soon as she touches the ground. There will be but little time given to them, for assuredly the seas will batter her to pieces the moment she falls among the rocks. Harold issued the order. All were to remain at their posts until he gave the word, and were then to run forward. The master scanned the shore anxiously. See you, my lord, that opening right ahead of us? It seems to me barely the width of the ship, but if I can direct her truly between the rocks, methinks that most of the crew will gain the land. I shall myself take the helm. That is my duty and my right, and should I not succeed in making the shore, I shall at least die well contented with the thought that you, who are the hope of England, will be saved. I would fain stay with you, Edred. That cannot be, my lord, as it is my duty to stay by the ship to the last, so it is your first duty to save your life for England. I need no aid, for the vessel steers well, and by the help of a rope round the tiller I can manage her alone farewell my lord if we are not to meet again on earth a very few minutes will decide our fate swimming will be of no use there osgod wulf said look how the spray dashes itself against the black rocks i thought not that it would be so bad osgod replied i wonder the master does not cast anchor the ropes would not hold for a moment wulf said and when they broke we might drift broadside on to the rocks which would mean destruction for all The master is steering for that narrow opening between these two great rocks ahead. It will be but two or three minutes now before our fate is decided. At this moment Harold shouted, Let each man make his peace with God, and bearing his head he stood silently for a minute or two, imitated by all on board. Then Harold again raised his voice in a shout that was heard above the storm. Move forward now, all of you, but not further forward than the mast, for if her head were too far down, the master could not hold her straight. Moreover, the mast would assuredly fall forward, and crush those in front of it. Therefore let no man go forward of it until the ship strikes." The sailors had already cut away the canvas stretched across the bow, and all on board clustered just aft of the mast. Wolf looked back and saw the master standing alone on the poop, with his eyes fixed in front of him, and a look of grim resolve on his face. Then he turned again to look ahead. The scene was terrible. On either side extended a long line of white foam. Great masses of water were hurled against the rocks with a thundering crash, and the spray flew high up into the air, and then, caught by the wind, was carried far inland. The rocks were now but a few lengths ahead, and the passage between them looked terribly narrow, so narrow that he doubted if the ship could possibly pass through them. Not a word was spoken on board as the ship neared the opening. Now she swerved a little to one side, now a little to the other, as the waves lifted her stern and swept her along, but the hand of the master checked her immediately, and brought her head back to the line. She was but a length away from the passage when there was a crash that shook her from stem to stern. Then another great wave lifted her, and Wulf saw a black wall of rock gleaming with the water that streamed down it. The wall of rock flashed past the bullocks so close that he could have touched it. A moment later the ship struck again, this time with a force that threw many off their feet, while the mast fell over the bow. Then once more she lifted, shot a few feet further, and struck with tremendous force and remained stationary. There was a grinding and splintering of planks as the men rushed forward, and then a wave swept over the vessel, carrying all on deck before it into the cove beyond the rock, rolling them over and over up a sandy shore behind. Some managed to dig their hands and feet into the sand and scramble out. More were sucked back again by the receding waters. As Wulf found himself in the water, he felt his arm clutched, and Osgod shouted in his ear, Do not struggle, I can keep you up. When thrown up on the sand, Wulf tried in vain to resist the backward rush of the water, and he and Osgod were borne out again. When the next wave again swept them up, Wulf saw the Earl standing knee-deep in the water as he was swept past. Harold seized him and Osgod, and with tremendous strength lifted them right out of the water. Keep still, he shouted your weight will help me to keep my feet." Wulf felt his supporter quiver as the water rushed out, for he was waist-deep now, but directly afterwards he set them both down on their feet, saying, "'Run before the next wave comes!' Ten yards farther, and they were beyond the reach of the sea. Harold was with them, and directed those who had got ashore to form lines, taking hold of each other's hands, and so to advance far into the surf and grasped their comrades as they were swept up. Many were saved in this way, although some of the rescuers were badly hurt by floating pieces of wreckage, for the vessel had entirely broken up immediately after her course had been arrested. As soon as all who could be seen were brought ashore, it was found that ten men were missing, among whom was the master of the ship, most of them having probably been struck by floating timbers. As soon as it was certain that no more would come ashore alive, Harold called the men together. Rough litters were made of oars and pieces of sail, for the conveyance of those who had broken limbs or were too much injured to walk, and the party prepared for a start. By this time several men, apparently of the fishing class, had approached, but stood a short distance away, evidently waiting for the departure of the party before beginning the work of collecting whatever the sea might cast up. Harold went over to them, and asked in the Norman tongue, "'What shore is this, and how far is it to the nearest town, where we can obtain shelter and assistance?' "'You are in Ponthieu, in the territories of Count Conrad. The town of St. Valery is two miles along the coast. There you can obtain all you need.' Returning to his men, Harold ordered the wounded to be raised and the party at once set out. Harold had already taken off his gold chain and rings, and had told his companions to do the same, in order that the cupidity of the natives might not be excited nor their rank guessed at. As soon as they started, Wolf went up to him. My lord, he said, I fear that you have already been recognized by one of the fishermen. I saw him look in earnestly at you, and then whisper to one of his companions. After doing so, he hurried away. That is bad news, Wulf. but I can hardly expect that I should be long unrecognised. There are many vessels come and go between the northern ports and our own, and in St. Valery there must be a number of sailors and fishermen who have seen me in London. Besides, we are sure to be questioned by the Count as to our rank and condition, and even if we could conceal it for a while, the news is certain to be brought ere long from England of our having been blown off the coast and when it was known, it would be speedily guessed that we were the missing party. Hark you, Wulf, I have never heard aught good of Count Conrad, and one cannot say what steps he may take to force us to pay a heavy ransom. But it is like enough that he will do all he can to prevent the news of my being in his hands from reaching the ears of the Duke. It is likely that you and Beorn, being but lads, will be watched less rigorously than the rest of us. Should this be so, try, if you find an opportunity, to send the news to the Duke that we are all held prisoners here. I shall of course endeavour to communicate with him, but some chance may occur by which you can do so more readily than I can. But I trust this Norman Count will treat you with all due honour and courtesy." Wolfe then fell back to Beorn's side, and half an hour later the shipwrecked party entered the gates of St. Valery. The townspeople flocked round them, and as soon as they learned they were a party of shipwrecked Saxons who had been blown by the gale from England, they were led into the house of the officer in command of the town. He asked them a few questions, saying, I must refer the matter to the Count. By the usages of our land, all who are cast upon it become his prisoners, to be put to ransom or otherwise, as he may decide. However, food shall be supplied to you at once but you must be content to remain under guard until his pleasure is known." They were accordingly at once placed in a disused granary, under the charge of a strong guard. Food was brought to them, and as soon as they had consumed this, most of the men threw themselves on the ground, worn out by their long exertions. "'This is a sorry welcome wolf after our escape from the sea,' Beorn said. "'Truly the land seems as inhospitable as the ocean.' It is not pleasant, Beorn, but at present I feel so thankful for my escape from those terrible waves, that even the thought that we are all prisoners to this petty noble does not greatly concern me. Doubtless William of Normandy, who is the liege lord of the land, will speedily take us out of his hands. Were we alone, it may be we should suffer a long stay in his dungeons but harold and his brother are far too important personages to be allowed to remain in the hands of one of the duke's vassals it is shameful beorn said indignantly i do not say that those who are cast on our shores may not often be pillaged and ill-treated by the common folk but surely none of gentle blood would fail to show them kindness and hospitality That is so on our coast of Sussex, but I have heard that further west, and certainly among the Danes of Northumbria, vessels cast on the coast are considered as gifts from the sea, and even the lives of those who gain the shore are not often respected. I regret much that Harold should be with us. It is true that his being here would doubtless shorten the term of our imprisonment, but it is unfortunate that he should fall into the hands of William, who was as famous for craft and subtlety as he is for bravery and skill as a leader. But what can he gain from Harold? Beorn asked. Our earl is well-nigh as much known throughout Europe as William of Normandy, and all of Christendom would cry out with shame were he treated with aught but courtesy by the duke. I doubt not that he will treat him with courtesy, Beorn, but he may well wring some concessions from him before he lets him depart he may bargain that the normans may be again allowed to hold land in england to build their castles as they did before godwin and his sons returned from exile and the normans had to fly the land save those around the person of the king he may beg so many bishoprics for norman priests there is no saying what concessions he may extort of all princes in europe i had rather harold had fallen into the hands of any other than those of william of normandy Truly, I have never troubled my head about such matters, Wolf, and thought that it would be time to do so when I became a thane, and had a vote at the Witten. I have heard much of them from the prior of Bramber, who is a true Englishman, and though a priest, learned in all matters that appertain to the history of times past, and of our own, he impressed upon me that just as a boy must practice arms if he is to bear them worthily as a man, so he should study the story of our kings and learn what is passing, not only in our own country, but in others, if he is ever to raise his voice in council." Harold and his thanes sat apart, discussing the position, their conclusion being very similar to that arrived by Wulf. Chivalry had but slight influence as yet in the west of Europe. Kings and princes cared little as to the means by which they attained an end. Rivals to a throne were put out of the way without scruple. The profession of arms was a business like any other, carried on for gain. A captured foe was valued chiefly for the amount of ransom that could be obtained for him. Petty barons and powerful nobles alike levied exactions on those who might fall into their hands, unless previously provided with a safe conduct. Years later, when King Richard was made a prisoner on his return from the Holy Land, it was only because of his great exploits for the recapture of Holy Sepulchre any feeling of reprobation was excited against his captors. Thus then, although Normandy was at peace with England, it did not seem an unnatural thing to Harold and his companions that the noble, into whose hands they had fallen, should demand a heavy ransom, or that the Duke of Normandy himself should utilise the opportunity for his advantage. On the following morning they heard a large body of horsemen ride up. A minute later, the governor, accompanied by a Norman noble, entered. They were followed by a number of men-at-arms, among whom was a fisherman. Now, fellow, the count said to this man, which is the Saxon Harold? I am, Harold said, advancing a step before his companions. I am Harold, Earl of Wessex. I have with my companions been cast on your shores. I expect honourable treatment, and am willing to pay any reasonable ransom should you demand one we will talk of that afterwards the count said roughly for the present you will go with me to my castle at borain but first do you and your men hand over all valuables that you may possess they are forfeited to me being cast upon my land without a word harold produced his chain of office and other ornaments and dropped them into a helmet which a soldier at the orders of the count held out for them his companions did the same the thanes first and then the two lads that will do the count said to the soldiers that is my share you can search the rest yourselves i protest against this robbery harold said haughtily and will proclaim you in all the courts of europe as one who is false to his station and who condescends to pillish those whom fortune has cast on his shores you can wait until you get the opportunity to do so the count sneered it is not likely to come for some time you can do as you like to the others he went on to the governor I want not to be cumbered with them. You can doubtless find work for them on the fortifications, but if you can put them to no use, or they are troublesome, cut their throats and throw them into the sea." The Saxons fingered their knives, but Harold said in their own tongue, Resistance would be folly. The time may come when we may turn the tables on this fellow. The soldiers now closed round Harold and the Thanes and led them out of the house. Here they were ordered to mount behind a soldier and as soon as they had done so, they rode out from Saint Valery, and crossed the river Somme at Abbeville, and the Othie by a ford near Crecy, reached the fortress of Beaureine on the river Conch, near the town of Hesdin before nightfall. On the road, Wolfe watched anxiously for a chance to escape, but none offered itself. Soldiers rode on both sides of the captives, and had he slipped from the horse, he could not have hoped to make his escape across an open country. As soon as they entered the fortress, Harold and the Thanes were all consigned to dungeons, but the Count, learning that the two lads had been Harold's pages, said they should wait on himself. And see, he said to them, that your service is good, if you do not wish to dangle over the moat at the end of a rope. "'It is a shame that such a man should be a nobleman,' Biorn exclaimed indignantly to Wulf as he saw that the soldiers were placing chains upon Harold before they led him away. He's a hateful-looking villain, Wulf said, but it is lately that he revolted against William. I heard of it from the prior. His brother, the last Count of Ponthieu, joined France in an invasion of Normandy, and he fell in an ambush at Saint-Orbin, and this man became Count. For a time he was held prisoner by the Duke, but afterwards he was freed and received back his dominions as a vassal his face is at once cruel and base i told you the instructions harold gave me Biorn. the need for carrying them out has arrived and i will try to make my escape without loss of time from this fortress to bear the tidings to the duke i will escape with you Wolf. two can get on better than one that is so bjorn and i would gladly have you with me but maybe i shall be detected in attempting to escape and be slain or i may fall into the hands of peasants and be brought back here and if we were together, all hope of letting the duke know of our lord's captivity would be at an end. Therefore it were best that I made the attempt first. If I fail, which is like enough, then do you in turn try to get away and bear the news to the duke?" Beorn did not like to stay behind, but he saw that Wulf's plan was best, and accordingly fell in with it. "'Will you go at once?' he asked. "'No. I will stay for a day or two, to lull suspicion. They may watch us just at first, but if they see what we do as we are ordered with good will, they will cease to regard us so narrowly. Moreover, it will be needful to know the place well before I devise a plan of escape. End of chapter 4